This is the Christmas season where we celebrate the amazing reality that God himself stepped into space and time to bear our sin. It's been an interesting week in Washington. Some of you, I'm sure, have been sort of following this. Others of you have been not. So uh, for those of you who have not, let me uh, just let you know that uh, your elected representatives uh, managed to pass a $1.1 trillion, that's trillion with a T, a trillion, $1.1 trillion spending bill that will fund the federal government through September of next year. And uh, I wish we could rejoice in such things, but the illustration of the, of the systemic problems in Washington were put on full display with a bill in excess of 1,700 pages that nobody reads. But here we are. Our topic uh, this morning is God and government. God and government. God himself instituted human government according to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. God created government, and he did so for the benefit of mankind. We're informed in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, that human government performs or is supposed to perform two basic and mean and critical functions, which are the suppression of evil and the promotion of that which is good. That's why God gave us government. And occasionally, human government uh, performs its function well. But generally speaking, generally speaking, human government throughout time has been less than ideal in carrying out the purpose for which God created it. Now, that shouldn't surprise you and I because a sin affects every aspect of the creation, and every bit of it is bent and twisted, and we should not expect human government to be any different. It is still the blessing of God, even though it doesn't work exactly according to the manufacturer's design. But what this does mean is that the people of God have always had to live in a tension between choosing to obey God and obey government when the two come in conflict with one another. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 this morning. We return again to Matthew's gospel in chapter 22, and in particular, taking a look at verses 15 through 22 this morning. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22 I've entitled the message this morning, Obeying God and Government. Obeying God and Government. Not obeying God or government, but obeying God and government. The text here in uh, Matthew chapter 22, where we find ourselves, is is a narration, uh, Matthew's narration, of a confrontation that occurs between Jesus and a portion of the leadership of, of the nation of Israel over the discussion of taxes. It is a confrontation over the subject of taxes. Now, nobody likes to pay taxes. 
taxes, right? Nobody likes to pay taxes. And taxes have been uh, historically a, a source of conflict and even fuel for revolution. There have been many revolutions that have been sparked or rebellions that have been sparked over the discussion of taxes. It kind of cuts to the heart of things. And what we have here is the leadership of the nation of Israel seeking to draw Jesus into a controversy over taxes as a way to destroy him. They want to destroy him. They are committed to destroying him. They will not stop until they destroy him. And they are seeking a means to do so. And they, and they latch on to the question of taxes as a way to do that. Now, the, the, uh, the text before us here is uh, really quite remarkable at, at a number of levels. Uh, Jesus avoids this uh, trap that is laid for them here in 15 to 22. He, he turns the tables on his inter, uh, those that are seeking to draw him in. And in the process, he makes a, an incredibly foundational statement about the relationship between uh, the government and God. Here at the end of, of uh, this section in verse 21, this, uh, this foundational uh, statement that deals with the realm of government and the realm of God is something that, that the apostles then built on in their, in their writings and other parts of the New Testament and sort of filled out and elaborated upon this incredible and important principle that Jesus lays down. So here's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to work through the text in its historical context so that we understand where it fits in the, in the flow of the Passion Week and to see how Jesus avoids his, very skillfully avoids his enemies who are bent on his destruction. And then what I want to do is I want to draw out this incredibly foundational statement that he makes. I want to look at it with you a little bit and to uh, seek to apply it, at least in seed form, to a number of areas in our own lives where we can find ourselves in a potential conflict with our own government. So that's where we're going this morning. So the outline I have for you this morning is, is uh, very, very simple. It's really just two words. And the two words, I think, capture the kind of the flow of the passage. And the words are simply this. Word, first word is entrapment. Entrapment. The second word is exposure. So it's a simple outline, entrapment and exposure. So let's take a look first at entrapment, and it begins here in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. Now, just to remind you, the, the Pharisees have been stung by the three parables that Jesus has told previously here in chapter 21 and uh, the first part of chapter 22. These parables directed against the leadership of the nation, parables of judgment upon the nation. And uh, verse uh, 45 uh, and 46 here of chapter 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they understood he was speaking about them. So they get it that he's talking directly about them. He's speaking about the judgment that's going to come on them. Rather than repent, verse 46, they sought to seize him. 
But they feared the people because they considered him, that is Jesus, to be a prophet. And so they are stung by these parables. They are smarting by them. They want to arrest him. They want to drag him off and do him in. But they are being prevented from doing so because he is wildly popular still at this point, at least superficially, with the people. And so they do not dare seize him for fear of causing a riot and bringing imperial Rome down upon their heads. And so they need to, they need to pry him loose somehow. They need, a, they need an accusation against him that will stick. And so they are desperate uh, to find this accusation. And so they withdraw, Matthew tells us here, verse 15, then the Pharisees went, that is, they withdrew from Jesus to plot against him. So they confer together. How do we trap this guy? How do we get him? And what they decide to do is that they're going to catch him in his own words. He's a teacher. Um, by, by virtue of that fact, he speaks a lot. Uh, those who speak a lot are uh, susceptible to, to misspeak. And, um, and so they want to catch him in, in a misspeak. And they don't just want to sit around and wait until he messes up. They want to draw him into messing up as it were. They want to get him to say something that will, that will enable them to make an accusation. And, and basically, they're looking for one of two things to happen. They either want him to say something that will put him in a position where Rome will be able to, uh, to come down on him, something seditious, so to speak somehow against Rome, or they want to have him say something that the people will find offensive and that they will no longer act as his protective screen. So how do we do that? Oh, okay, we've got it. Let's draw him into a discussion of taxes. Well, that's simple enough. Who collects taxes? Rome. Uh, Who likes to pay taxes? Nobody. So we've got him. We've got him. Let's draw him into a question on taxes. And his answer will result... They believe in either a seditious statement against Rome or a wildly unpopular statement with the people, and either way, they've got him. So they form a conspiracy. They form a conspiracy to entrap him. And like like all conspiracies, it has the classic elements. There is a very careful planning that goes on, and that's what Matthew indicates. They went and plotted together. The idea is they, you know, they banged this around a while until they came up with the idea. So there is a careful planning. There is subterfuge involved. They're going to come to him, uh, not openly, but, but in a way that, that, uh, that they expect him not to sense, and that they can, they can approach him close enough to to uh, do the dastardly deed. As often happens in conspiracies, there's an unholy alliance to be formed in how they approach him, and we'll deal with that here in a minute or two. And then finally, there is uh, what I call the sweet-tasting poison of flattery. This is how they're to approach him, through the sweet-tasting poison of flattery. So, having arrived at their plan... They send their students, they send their students to set and bait the trap. And these students uh, go along with the supporters of Herod, they're called the Herodians, and they are there in order to act as witnesses when the trap is sprung. 
So, verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. This is the subterfuge. The Pharisees don't approach him directly. And uh, we don't know for sure, but here's some possibilities. One is that uh, the Pharisees wore very distinctive garments. So if they were to approach him directly, he would know that they are Pharisees. And he knows the Pharisees hate his guts. And they know that he knows. And so to approach him directly in that way, they think would put him on his guard. So the Pharisees don't approach him directly. What they do is they get their students, their disciples. They get the the young men who are learning to be Pharisees. They don't get to wear Pharisaical robes. And they look more run-of-the-mill. And so uh, we won't do it ourselves. We'll send our flunkies to do it. Okay, so there's a subterfuge going on, and, and, and it's possible, I think, I can't prove it, but I think it's quite likely that uh, they're hoping that this, um, this causes Jesus to let down his guard. If the Pharisees approach him, his guard's going to be up. If the students approach him, maybe his guard will be down, and so they can get in close and do their dirty deed. Beyond that, uh, they bring with them, notice verse 16, the Herodians, the Herodians. Now, um, the Herodians only appear in a couple places. Uh, I believe Mark 3.6 is the other place they appear in the Gospels. Uh, there's not a lot known about them, but they were evidently a group of, uh, of people, men, uh, likely men, of some substance, who had aligned themselves with the house of Herod. You remember Herod the Great formerly ruled in this entire area. When he died, it was portioned out to his sons. Uh, several of his sons were screw-ups, and so uh, Rome came back in and took it away. And uh, so part of the nation was under direct Roman rule. For example, Judea Galilee remained under rule of the house of Herod. So those uh, who were uh, associated with the house of Herod, wanting to see Herodian rule again over the entire nation of Israel, would be the Herodians. Now, the, the Pharisees, they were not friends with the Herodians, They considered the Herodians to be irreligious traitors to the nation. That's why I call it an unholy alliance. They were irreligious traitors to the nation, yet they are here along with the students of the the, uh, Pharisees to bring about this nefarious deed. Subterfuge and unholy alliances. And it's amazing, isn't it, that what the hatred of God will motivate one to do what kind of alliance one might find themselves in. And, and let me just tell you, beloved, one finds themselves in the alliance with Satan himself, in the opposition of Christ. And that's what you have here, an unholy alliance. So they come to him, verse 16, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Now, I hope you can sense the, the uh, flattery here. You can sense the flattery here. Now, what's amazing, I think, is that everything they're saying here is actually true. They don't believe it's true, but it is true. So even in the mouth of these unholy men, uh, truth is spoken about the Messiah. But they come to him here, and, uh, and they, are, they are seeking to puff him up. Okay? They are seeking to, uh, to appeal to his ego, to his pride. Listen, what, what uh, was the cause of the fall of Satan? 
It was his pride, right? I will make myself like the most high. What is the, what is the Achilles heel, as it were, of every man, every woman? It is their pride. It is their pride. And so they come after Christ by seeking to, to penetrate his defenses by attacking what they believe to be his pride. Now, that just demonstrates how far they are from understanding who they are dealing with. For if he were merely a man, uh, this plan would no doubt work. But because he is more than a man, yeah, he is the Messiah himself, their plan is destined for failure. But, but, in the, but understanding it is destined to, for failure, beloved, don't, don't, don't misunderstand or, or misestimate the reality that there is a real temptation going on here. They are after him. They are after him. And this is a real spiritual battle. They want to puff him up. And in the process of puffing him up, they want to catch him in an unguarded moment, making a statement that they will later then turn back on him. And by the way, he never does, of course. But at the time later in his, uh, in his unlawful trial, they'll bring forward false witnesses who will, who will lie and say that he actually did speak seditiously towards Rome, but he never did. Now, specifically, they compliment him in four areas here in verse 16. First, with regard to his integrity. They say, we know that you are truthful. The idea here is that uh, we know that you can be relied upon to say what is right. Secondly, they appeal to his reliability. We know that you teach the way of God in truth. That is, that is what you say about God is true. So, you can be relied upon to say what is right. Uh, what you say about God is true. Third, they, uh, they uh, appeal to his courage. You defer to no one. That is, you tell the truth regardless of what people think. And fourth, they appeal to his impartiality. You are not partial to any. That is, a, a person of rank does not impress you. Now, if they approach me in this way, I will confess to you that it is highly likely that the poison would do its dirty deed. Having been flattered in this way and told, wow, what a wonderful Bible teacher you are. The way you open the scriptures and speak and, and, and make it so plain. And, and you never speak wrong. And, and, uh, and you don't care who you're talking to. You speak with such boldness and courage and your love for God is so evident. And I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> All right. And you would too. And you would too. See how they baited the trap? I mean, this is a, this is a sweet tasting poison. It's a sweet tasting poison. And by the way, they've dished out enough of it here to kill 10 men. They have laid it on thick. And so they seek to spring the trap. Tell us then. Tell us then, you, you, you amazing person, tell us, what do you think? Well, now you want my opinion. What do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, the way they've worded this question is they want a yes or no answer. And they've worded it in such a way to elicit a yes or no answer. Is it according 
to the law of God to give money to Rome. Verse 17, is it lawful? That is, is it according to the law of God? You're a teacher of, the, of God, right? You're one who always speaks truth of God. You're one who, who, um, who is a truthful person. Right? You're, you're one who has courage. You don't care whether people agree with you or not. You'll just speak the truth. You're not, you're not cowered by uh, the weight and, and might of imperial Rome. You'll speak yes or no. Is it lawful, according to Moses, the law of God, to give a poll tax? I notice not pay. To give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Tell us what you think. Now, the poll tax, it's really fascinating here, the way they do this trap. The, the issue of the poll tax was probably one of the most controversial uh, questions in Israel in the first century at this time. It, you know, nobody likes taxes, Right? And Israel did not like taxes. And there were many taxes. But, but many of the taxes were sort of directly attributable to certain aspects that, that you know, you don't like to pay it. Like, example, customs. But, but at least it's, a, it's equated to moving goods from one place to another. It's associated with commerce. And so, yeah, I don't like it. You know, I've got to pay sales tax. I don't like it. But, you know, I'm getting something. Now, the poll tax. I, you know, I get myself in trouble here, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think the poll... I think the poll tax for us could be most closely related to the income tax. Okay? Well, where, the, where you, you work hard, you make money, and then the government takes it away from you. Okay? The income tax. The poll tax. And this is a very politically charged question in this time. What was the poll tax? Well, it was simply this. It was an annual tax, an annual levy of one denarius, which was a day's wages, one denarius per person for every non-citizen man and woman living under Roman rule, okay? Directly under Roman rule. That is, every man and woman in Judea had to cough up a day's wage annually and give it to Rome, the poll tax, it went directly to Rome. And beyond that, it had to be paid in imperial currency. That is, it had to be paid with a Roman denarius. You couldn't, uh, you know, in Palestine at that time, you understand there were many currencies in circulation, as it was typical of the ancient world. This particular area had been conquered so many times by so many different empires. There were a lot of coinage in circulation. It was long before paper money. Right? This was when hard money. And so there was all kinds of hard money in circulation. And it was useful for trade. But for the payment of the poll tax, it must be paid in imperial coinage. You had to give a denarius, a silver coin. And this silver coin had the picture of the Caesar on it. It also had inscriptions on both sides. On one side, it said, Son of God. The Caesar, son of God. On the other side of the coin, it said, high priest. This was the cult of imperial worship. It began with, with uh, Augustine. And uh, 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 it, it, it transferred to the, uh, to the remaining Caesars. And so there is this uh, Augustus. I said Augustine. I am sorry. That's a church father. It's Augustus. 
Didn't begin with Augustus, it began with Augustus. This coin has his, has his likeness on it. And the, and the verbiage, son of God, high priest. This is the coin you must pay this loathsome tax in. Now, this tax began in Judea in AD 6. AD 6, so it's relatively recent. The son of Herod, Archelaus, who, by the way, he uh, passes through the page of Scripture. Matthew 2.22 mentions Archelaus. As I say, he was one of the sons of Herod. He was, a, he was uh, a wicked man and a terrible ruler. And he was deposed by Rome only a couple of years after, you know, uh, Herod the Great died about 5 B.C. Archelaus takes over, and by 6 A.D., he's gone. Rome takes it away from him and makes Judea now a direct Roman rule. So it is ruled through, um, at this time, Pilate. So beginning in 86, Judea comes under direct Roman rule and the poll tax is imposed upon them. Now the imposition of the poll tax is very, very, very unpopular. Not just in those who are paying it, but all Jews, for they see it as an affront. They see it as an affront. They believe God is their king, and now this pagan king is, is, is subtracting this, pack, this tax from their paycheck. And so it was the cause of a revolt, actually. There was, a, there was a man named Judas of Galilee, and by the way, his name appears in Scripture in Acts chapter 5 and verse 37. He instituted a revolt over this tax in Galilee. By the way, it's not Judas Iscariot. It's, it's uh, Judas the Galilean. And he led this revolt. It began in Galilee. And so it just kind of indicates that it was crushed by Rome. But it indicates how, how, uh, how much the people hated this and how inflammatory this tax was. This poll tax later comes back around again and is, is one of the contributing factors to the cause of the Jewish war that begins again in Galilee in AD 66 and sweeps south until AD 70. The temple is destroyed. The first Jewish war. And so you can see that the, the, um, those anti-tax people weren't called Tea Party in those days. They were called zealots. Okay? They were called the zealots. And uh, uh, the majority of the, of the Jews in the world, uh, the biggest concentration was Galilee. That's where the rebellions would be fomented. And that's where the original tax revolt began and then the subsequent one. So they're bringing this important, important question before Jesus. And uh, it's interesting here because he's Galilean. So they're bringing it to him. He's also exempt from the tax because he's Galilean. He's under the, he's under the, uh, under the rule of Herod. So he pays other taxes, but he doesn't pay this one. So on the surface, this sounds like a very innocent question, right? Just ask the opinion of a popular leader, popular Bible teacher. Hey, hey there, Jesus. How you doing? You know, this poll tax thing, I, I mean, I know you don't pay it, but, but uh, what do you think about that? Is it, is it lawful? What do you think God thinks about paying this tax, this, giving this money to Caesar or not? Entrapment. Exposure. Verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? 
John says that Jesus uh, was never taken in by, by the, the um, superficial uh, acclaim of the Jewish nation. Because he knew what was in a man. And he knows what's going on here. And he cuts right to the chase, right? He, goes, he, he just cuts right through the whole charade here. And, and he condemns them for their hypocrisy. He perceived their malice. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? You hypocrites. You come to me uh, flattering me and telling me that, you know, I'm this wonderful person. You admire me. But you're saying all of this with the intent, purpose of catching me in, a, in some uh, misstatement so that you might destroy me. You hypocrites. And then he turns the table here. It's marvelous. He calls for the coin. Bring me a denarius. And they bring him one. And they bring him one. Whose likeness is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Whose inscription is on this coin? Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The Pharisees come to him, and they ask him, is it lawful to give money to the Romans in the form of a poll tax? Jesus answers them that the money belongs to Caesar. So they are obligated, that's what the word render means, they are obligated to pay what they owe. To pay what they owe. And the logic of this is is simply this. Listen, if you're using the imperial currency, you're using the emperor's idolatrous coin, then you can hardly object to paying his tax with it. Give it back to him. Give it back. Pay your taxes, is what he is saying. But he says it in such a way that he draws out the theological reality behind it. But the population, they don't hear, pay your taxes to Rome, it's, you know, it's good. And so they, they don't abandon him. Now underneath his statement here is, is simply this. You are receiving benefit from Rome. You won't acknowledge it, but you are. Rome provides safety. Rome provides security. Rome provides commerce. And you readily acknowledge all of this because you use the imperial currency. You use the imperial currency. If I could say it this way, we acknowledge the the federal government's right to create fiat money by our use of fiat money. When you open your billfold and you take out a George Washington or a Ben Franklin or, you know, whatever you got in there, right? 
and you, and you give it to someone in, in, in payment of an obligation or in purchase of an item, you are acknowledging the right of the government to create this paper money that maybe you don't like, but you're using it. You're part of the system too. So they're obligated to pay their taxes. They're obligated to pay their taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. And to God the things that are God. And this is where it gets interesting. They're obligated to pay their taxes. But Jesus goes on in this statement to to set out the limits of government too. In this really short little statement, he he both explains the the obligations and authorities of government and the limits of government. The claim on the Roman denarius, right, that the emperor is divine, is patently false. It's patently false. It actually is a statement that strays into the realm of God. And in the realm of God, there's an obligation that that they have, that we have, to to pay to God what we owe God. See, what Jesus is doing here is, is he is setting out the twin realms of government and God. Twin realms. You can think of these realms as like a pair of circles. Okay, maybe this helps. Think of it like a pair of circles. There is a small circle called the realm of God. And then there is a large circle called, did I say realm of God in the beginning? I said that wrong. Back up that tape. Called the realm of government. Small circle, realm of government. Large circle, realm of God. The small circle is within the large circle. It's within the large circle. So, as long as the government is operating properly within the, the realm of God, then we are obligated to obey the government. When the government seeks to, to come outside of its circle and to invade the large circle of the realm of God, then we are obligated to refuse to obey them. Now, God's realm encompasses, as I say, the governmental realm the governmental realm exists by and inside the authority of God. The Daniel chapter 2 makes that very, very clear. Very clear. So Jesus is teaching here, there's, there's two principles, okay? There are two principles that govern these two realms, these two authority sources. The first, the small circle, the realm of government, is simply this, that the taxes and all other responsibilities related to this small circle, this realm of government, must be paid in recognition of the fact that God raised up the government and that obedience to government is ultimately obedience to God. So pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. The other principle that he lays out here is that government cannot have what belongs to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that belong to Caesar, belong to government, but render to God the things that belong to God. Well, what belongs to God? What is of the realm of God? 
Well, it's things like this. It's ultimate allegiance. Ultimate allegiance. It is, it is obedience. It is worship. It is praise. Particularly here, the coin makes a claim for Caesar that strays out of the realm of Caesar where they want to, to receive worship. That's God's realm. What Jesus is saying here, essentially, is that as long as the government remains in the realm that belongs to them, you must obey them. When they stray out of the realm that belongs to them and they invade the realm of God, they have overstepped their boundaries and they must be resisted. They must be resisted. Now listen, the early church understood this. The early church understood this, and that's why they were so badly persecuted. When every year they, all Romans were called to offer a pinch of incense, they could have freedom of worship for an entire year, but once a year they had to offer a pinch of incense, and they had to say, Caesar is Lord. That was a, that was, um, a statement of, of national allegiance and an acknowledgement that Caesar was over the entire pantheon of gods from a Roman point of view. The Christians were persecuted because the one thing they refused to do was to say that Caesar is Lord. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. See, Jesus is Lord. And they died for that statement. They were willing to die. Now, verse 22, in hearing this, now he's talking to people here who, you know, these are the students of the Pharisees, right? If anybody understands the law, it's the students of the teachers of the law. Hearing this, they were amazed, absolutely amazed, and, and, and they just walk away. They just walk away from it. They have been bested. All right. We're going to need to move quickly here because I want to apply this. I want to try to apply it. And so what I want to do is I want to try to offer some guidance. I want to try to offer some guidance. And in this guidance, uh, I will just acknowledge to you right up front, is based upon my attempt to apply the truth of this passage. There's no doubt about the truth of it, but it is my attempt to apply that truth to some of the hot-button issues of our own day. So I offer these things to you. I believe they are true to the Word of God. But I do offer them to you in that it is my opinion. Okay? It is my opinion. Now, there are some general principles, I think, that I just want to state to get us started. Okay? So uh, I hope you have the no- notes. I was going to look up some of these passages with you, but there's just no time for that. Okay? If you don't have the notes, by the way, you can get the notes. Just get on the mailing list, and they'll be emailed to you every week. So well, let's begin with some general principles for, for us, Americans living in the 21st century, okay? between God and government. Here it is, general principle. We have a privilege here in America of voting our leaders into and out of office. You understand that, right? That is a privilege. It is a gift from God. It would be foolish of us to not take advantage of that privilege by seeking to elect those representatives who most closely reflect our Christian worldview. That would just be a dumb thing to do to not use the privilege that we have to bring into our, as our elected representatives, those that most closely represent our Christian worldview. I don't think there's any controversial about that. Second general principle. Money is fungible. 
Money is fungible. That means freely interchangeable. Money is fungible. And what that means is that we cannot trace our specific tax dollar to any individual government expense. You cannot trace your tax dollar to any particular governmental expense. Okay? Remember, by the way, when Jesus says, render to the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, uh, Caesar was far from a moral government, right? Listen, God does not hold, what I'm trying to say is, God does not hold me or you responsible for what the government does with your tax dollars. He holds the individual uh, people in government who have the authority to direct where the tax dollars are spent responsible for where they're spent. Not you and not me. Money is fungible. Third basic principle. If we believe we must violate Caesar's laws, we must be willing to suffer because of it. Now, this is a harder one. This is a harder one. But listen, if, you, if we believe, if you believe that you must violate governmental law, right, that, they have, that the government has strayed into the realm of God, if you believe that and you say, I will not obey this law because it's a violation, right, of the word and will of God, you must be willing to suffer for that statement. You cannot make that statement and say, but I shouldn't be punished by that government for the violation of their law. We see it in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42. Okay? Willing to suffer. There they counted it a privilege to suffer. Beyond that, just because we are willing to suffer doesn't mean that we are mandated to suffer. You understand the difference? You may be willing to suffer, but it doesn't mean that you are mandated to suffer. You are not required to suffer if you can avoid it. If you can avoid it, we have the illustration of the Apostle Paul in Acts 22 and verse 25, who brings out his Roman citizenship to avoid being flogged. Okay? So that we have the ability, if we have the legal means to avoid suffering, then we should use it. Okay? Fourth, we should never put ourselves into a position of suffering that is brought on upon us because we have engaged in wicked and ungodly behavior. Okay? If you suffer because you've engaged in wicked and ungodly behavior, then you're getting what you deserve. What you deserve. Fifth. Earnest Christians have differences of opinion and we must leave room for one another's conscience in these discussions. In other words, what constitutes sin for one Christian may not constitute sin for another Christian in a gray area. And that's the point of Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. Okay? So those are general principles. Now, what I want to do is try to apply quickly these general principles to some specific hot-button issues. Right? Remembering, I'm not trying to bind your conscience. If before God you don't agree, be convinced in your own mind from the word of God. All right, number one, evangelism. Evangelism. If the government were to pass a law prohibiting Christians from sharing their faith, we would be obliged to violate that law. Why? 
because we are obliged of God in the realm of God to obey the Great Commission. There is a mandate in the Great Commission. That's the principle that we see enacted in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, right? Where they say, you decide whether it's right in the sight of God and man for us to be quiet, but we're going to talk. Okay? So the government says you cannot preach the gospel. You are obligated to violate that law. Now, having said that, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves in how we go about the evangelism. This is not an open invitation to provoke the government. Okay? So evangelism. Second, taxes. Should our elected representatives raise the tax rates, we are obligated by God to pay the taxes even though we don't like them. Even if we think they are oppressive, we are obligated to pay. That sits well, huh? Let's go on to one that's even more difficult. Abortion. Abortion. Some Christians believe that they must publicly stand against this evil no matter what the cost. Some believe that. And what I mean by that is to, is to um, picket, to, to in, be involved in rescue operations and things like that. I am of the opinion, and it is my opinion, but I am of the opinion that as long as the government does not mandate me to abort my children, then they have not placed me in a position of having to choose between obeying God and men. Therefore, I believe that public protest is a matter of Christian conscience. If God is calling you to do that, do it. But I do not believe he is calling me to do that. And therefore, I do not believe that I am in sin for not participating. Fourth, homosexual marriage. Homosexual marriage. God clearly forbids the practice of homosexuality as one of a number of grievous sexual sins. It's absolutely prohibited and forbidden in the word of God. Therefore, as Christians, we cannot condone, we cannot participate in that which God forbids. We must vigorously oppose the idea that the government has ultimate authority over that which is a creation ordinance. Marriage is God's creation, not government's. There are two realms here. And the issue of homosexual marriage belongs to the realm of God. In other words... While a homosexual couple may be married in the eyes of the state, they are not married in the eyes of God. It is not a true wedding, a true marriage. Now, if the government seeks to force our participation in homosexual marriage, we 
must refuse. We must refuse. However, the government still does have a legitimate role to play in marriage. So I am not advocating the entire abandonment of the governmental role in marriage. That is a position that some take. I do not believe it is the right position. The government maintains a legitimate role, and here it is. It is the role of suppressing evil, the evil that would result if there were no marriage laws at all. Therefore, as Christians, we should continue to abide by the government's rules regarding marriage licenses, property rights, inheritance, alimony, and child support, and things like this, so long as they do not require us to participate in something that God forbids. So as a Christian couple wanting to be married, go get a marriage license. The government says you have to have one. The government is operating within its, within its God-ordained realm when it says that, so you must go get one. So even though the government is, is not reflecting perfectly what God would have for them, to the extent they are not violating what God has, you must still obey them. You see the difference? Fifth and finally, parental prerogatives. Parental prerogatives. God holds parents responsible for raising and discipling their own children. Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. God holds parents responsible. As such... Parents have ultimate authority over the decisions for their children like educational choice and the means of correcting their own children. That is a parental authority, not a governmental authority. Now, where those decisions conflict with the government's laws, the parents have to choose. They have to choose to whom they will obey, the government or God. But we need to be careful that we do not set up a clash or a conflict unnecessarily because it may well bring suffering. It may well bring suffering. So be sure that this is something that God would have you suffer for. Now, the book of Proverbs, which is where we get a lot of parenting uh, help, right? Out of the book of Proverbs. You need to understand that the book of Proverbs is an expression of godly wisdom principles. It is not statements of ironclad biblical command. That is very important to understand. Therefore, the question of spanking, let's just take it there, right? Spare the rod and spoil the child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction drives it from him, right? The question of spanking, in my opinion, is a matter of parental prerogative, not 
a biblical command. It is a matter of parental prerogative, not a biblical command. If it were a biblical command, then to refuse to spank would be to to commit sin. And I do not believe it is sin for a parent to decline to spank their child. It is sin for a parent to decline to correct their children. But the means and mechanism by which they correct them, the Bible provides guidance and wisdom principles. We need to use them. So, if you want to chastise your children physically, corporal punishment, you are within your God-given rights. If the state doesn't like it, be careful. Be careful. Do not set yourself up on a collision course. Does that make sense? And if you choose to correct your children in another way, as your brothers and sisters in Christ, we have no place to judge you. Does that make sense? Okay. So these are some difficult issues. Difficult issues. And I... Certainly, we haven't exhausted them. What I've tried to do is to, is to give you some basic principles that you can take and begin to fill them out yourself and, and then maybe in discussion with other believers here. There are things we cannot do, we must not do, we need to be willing, if necessary, to suffer for our refusal to do or not do. But there is a wide latitude in many areas. May God give us grace to negotiate the difficult waters of living in a society that is increasingly hostile to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what has been said here this morning would be pleasing to you, Father, and those things that are not in accordance with your word, should they be there, should they exist, O Lord, that your spirit would wipe them away from our minds. I pray that we would take out of here only what is true. I pray, Father, that as a people of the book, that you would, um, by your Spirit, drive us into that book. That we would spend considerable time and effort and energy pouring over it. As your Spirit opens our eyes to see and understand the things written there. Oh, Lord... We uh, see how Jesus negotiated the treacherous waters in no small part because he was a man of the book. Our Father, we pray that from his example we would draw inspiration. You would work in our hearts and lives. Help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. For the sake of the kingdom of God. Amen.